I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. Um, so my next book uh, is called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. Um, this one... So, Merlin Sheldrake. Have you guys heard of the, the musician... Have you heard of the musician Cosmo Sheldrake? Nope. Sure haven't. Okay. Well, I feel like you might like him, Jesse. But uh, so Cosmo Sheldrake is some is an artist who I've followed for a while. I really enjoy his stuff. It's super zany. Um, and he sings about kind of random stuff. Sometimes he'll sing about um, like fairy tale type stuff, but then sometimes he'll sing about like an actual like the tardigrades and like like microbiology concepts and stuff. I really enjoy his stuff. A friend of mine on Instagram shared that she was listening to Cosmo Sheldrake. I was like, oh man, I don't know many people who also listen to this artist. And she's like, yes, but are you familiar with the rest of his family? And I said, no. And so then she fills me in. She's like, the Sheldrakes are crazy. And she's like, my favorite Sheldrake is Merlin Sheldrake. And <laughs> and he He's is... a wizard, not a big deal. <laughs> No, okay. Cosmo also sounds like he could be a wizard, but yeah, uh, I think it's from Fairly Odd Parents. Yeah, so uh, hippies, I believe. Um, Merlin, you're a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> what? Cosmo, you're you're a bard. All right. <laughs> um, so yeah, Merlin Sheldrake. It, he is. What do you call someone who studies fungi? Oh, I feel like an idiot. Uh. Fungologist? Uh, yeah, let's call him a, fung- a fungologist. A fu- maybe a fungal. Fun- no, it's Whoa. definitely not that. It's uh, oh, I hate myself for not knowing. But Wait, anyway, am, am I am I sconologist? Am I missiologist? No. Missiologist is actually the study of missions. Actually, though, no, it's from mycology. It might actually be mycology. Yeah, and so would be a mycologist. Anyway, we don't we don't need to. He is that thing, and he's an expert on fungi, and he wrote an. A fantastic book on fungi. He's, he's absolutely mesmerized by the the impact of fungi on the natural world, on human society, on every conceivable like like agriculture and all kinds of different things. And like anyone who's really passionate about their space, you know, he sees um, his area of expertise as being the thing that would really solve all of humanity's problems. Of course, right? Yeah, just we just need to figure out how to work with fungi better. And we'll solve hunger. We'll solve oh. depression. We'll solve everything. Um, Is he big on 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 eating the weird ones? So he definitely he definitely is fascinated by the fact that that is something that happens. Like he's fascinated by the fact that fungi has these properties which seem to be adaptive in the sense that they utilize the effects that they have on other species for their own propagation and stuff like that, and that they take advantage of the chemical impact that they have on different species to push us to do things for them, like spreading them and farming them and stuff like that. Um, and so entangled life. And he talks about how like you'll have entire forests where they're all connected. All the trees are connected by fungi and have in some sense, like a sort of an odd Almost computer-like conscious network within a forest 
of multiple different organisms and the connecting <clears throat> tissue is fungi. And it's so fascinating. Mm. So this book is like a very, very strong recommend. He's also the most poetic writer you can That's imagine. Um, so I do, I do quite strongly recommend this. I also recommend the music of his brother, uh, Cosmo. So uh, Merlin uh, and Cosmo Sheldrake. I'm totally adding this to my reading list. Let's go. Cool. Um, <clears throat> of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Incredible audio drama, or audio, not audio drama, just audio book, the readers out of this world. Um, again, Steinbeck, it's almost ridiculous. Like, I don't know how to describe the plot. It's uh, a guy who's a, uh, two guys, they're searching for work. One of them's like a kind of a snarky, smaller guy, and one of them's a big, um, like a really, really super, super strong, powerful um, simpleton, like a. He's clearly mentally handicapped. I'm trying to find... I, who's read this? I have. You have? Um, you will cry. At the, you, you have. You will cry when you get to the end of this little no, novel. It's a novella. It's very short. It's about 100 pages. It is... Steinbeck does what Steinbeck does so well. It just gets you inside this little slice of a world of what it's like to work on these hired as a hired hand of life on, on the ranch just over it. The book takes place over a week, maybe um, just playing with these really complex themes of a, a guy who's too childlike for his own strength. Maybe, maybe the best way to hook the book is what would happen if you took some of the foolishness of a four year old and made him one of the most powerful men on the, the simplicity, the be the beautiful childlikeness of a four-year-old and made him one of the strongest men on the farm. And stuff happens in that book. It's just, it's heartbreaking. People are driven to choices. It's just, yeah, it's, it's very, it's a, it's a, it's a hard read, but it's a beautiful read, but it, it'll make you cry at the end for sure. And he writes characters that are so normal and so compelling it's, it's, I don't know if you have any better words, Jesse, but I really think people should, especially audiobook it or just give it a read. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I have a question. A, a podcast or two ago, I recommended um, Cannery Row by mm. Steinbeck. Did anyone end up reading it? I haven't, no. Okay. That's fine. I didn't give it as high as a recommend as I almost wish I did, so probably none of you were like jumping to add it to your list. But Yeah, we have to kind of uh, restrain it. Because the plot was like less... It was it was almost like almost like a collection of short stories, except all about the same people. So the plot wasn't super compelling, but there was just a few moments that just had me in tears. Um, I think you do rec you did recommend it quite okay, quite yeah. reasonably high. Yeah, so. Okay. Anyway, no. Uh, I was just curious. I, it's not the big deal. I was just curious if anyone had read it. Anyway. Steinbeck is 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 so much. I, weirdly, I feel like Steinbeck is like P.G. Woodhouse, in that there's nothing. No, no. Hear me out. Hear me out. Before you aghast, in the sense of how you can't describe a P.G. Woodhouse plot as the hook for why you should read it. And you can't really describe a, a Steinbeck plot as the hook for why you should read it. You need to start the read, and then very quickly you'll go, oh, that's why I'm reading this book, you know? A Stand for Truth, Contending for the Faith at Southern Seminary ah! by John Michael. <clears throat> so, uh, so I published a book, which, uh, no. There's a guy named Wait, John. Actually? Oh, dang it. 
<laughs> yeah, I me believed you for contending, a second. contending ah. for the faith at Southern Seminary. Tell this story well. This is really funny. So, Jake and I, it's part of our job to do networking, and uh, we knew it was Founders Week at Southern, so we were like, we're just gonna make small talk with some of these, you know, older folk walking around, just get to know them. Uh, bumped into a guy, and it's like, oh yeah, my name's John Michael. It's like, so is mine. Uh, but actually, it's John, first name, R, middle name, Michael, last name. So, anyways, bumped into him, good chat, forgot about it. Uh, then, <coughs> several months later, a good friend of mine and I were walking around the seminary campus in the evening, just chatting, and we went over to the bookstore and we saw kind of some lights in there and there's a, a crowd of people and uh, we went over to it and the the provost was standing outside. So we were chatting with him a little bit. He's like, hey, do you want to come on in? And we saw everybody wearing like suits and ties and dresses and it looked pretty fancy and there was mostly just gray hairs, but we we're like, sure, we'll join. Uh, walked in and I was in shorts and flip flops. He was wearing like, I forget, it was like a hoodie or something like that. Uh, and we were at least 30 years younger and it was like a party for Al Mohler, uh, like a private invite only party with like catering and everything. And the provost invited us in and we just crashed Al Mohler's party. Uh, but then we bumped into John Michael again. Uh, and when we were there, he was like, have you read my book? I wrote this book, A Stand for Truth. Uh, and basically he was one of the people who was part of the journey of Southern Seminary during its very liberal phase. So it was founded, very conservative, super solid Reformed Baptist. Uh, like I'm thinking like uh, 80 years ago, liberalism made its way into the seminary, like really, really bad to the point where people were like denying the resurrection as a historical fact. Uh, there was an ethics professor showing like pornography in the ethics class like as a teaching thing uh and there were like just several other like crazy things so he was part of bringing in al Mohler, and basically that's what this book is it's like telling the story of being elected as a conservative trustee on a board that's primarily super liberal and then eventually the board slowly shifting to be more and more conservative which represented like the southern baptist convention's position uh, and all the like the political drama that was happening there. Uh, and then eventually with actually largely his help and a couple other like key people, Al, Mo Al Mohler was able to be elected. And then he did like crazy reform uh, in the seminary and even in like the whole convention. So it's just, a, I want to hear you describe it, Jake, but I, I need to be careful in, in, in how I say this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, they, I think they self-published it. Uh, so he wrote, him and his wife wrote it themselves. Uh, it was so engaging. Like, I kind of, like, didn't plan on reading it. I was like, I'll just maybe skim through this. And I ended up, like, eating it up. And yet it, it also was, uh, you know, you could tell it hadn't necessarily had, like, a professional editor through it. But weirdly, that made it kind of charming. Like, it, it made it feel uh, very tangible, like it was straight from the person. So, in the end, it, it was, like, one of the things I enjoyed reading most, 
this year, hmm. weirdly. Cool. Uh, and it was just cool to learn the history behind the seminary. Like in the last hundred years, what are some of the things that have like changed and what was the transition from being like crazy liberal to now extremely conservative uh, before Moeller came in? Something out. Oh, go for it. I was just going to say something I want to do more of is read history of things that are actually yes. part of my life. Yes. I have a friend who just recently read like a history of the churches in Hamilton. Someone published a little book about that. Again, probably like not a very well-known book, but he was so fascinated when one thing is tangible. It's, it's sort of the same reason that we loved Steve Jobs or the Nintendo things as effects to our life. So if you can pick like a subculture, like Southern Baptist or something or an industry you're in and like, I'm going to read the history of it. That would, that would slap. I want to do a bit more of that. Well, absolutely, because he's talking about stuff that happened in the classrooms I go to every week. Um, yeah, um, I, can, I echo everything uh, John Michael said. The book um, was written from a point of view very strongly. And that made it very funny to read at times. Like, it would, you know, sometimes it'd be like, once again, the liberals went back licking their wounds, having lost again. But they would, reg- <laughs> but they would regroup and come back. So I'm just, I'm howling reading some of these lines. Oh but the one of the most engaging books I've read in a long time, an absolute page turner. So fat and and it's all politics stuff. Like it's all like the trustees, the vote was here, mm-hmm. and then an amendment came and was struck down. And because it was struck down, they weren't allowed to talk about this issue. But then Adrian, you know, but then two weeks later, Adrian Rogers in the you know, being the tenth elected conservative president in a row, nominated this person, which changed the tide of the votes this way. And like it, it just runs like a giant political drama because mm-hmm. it was. Um, and the whole cons- the conservative resurgence in the SBC is a wild story. And I'm grateful for it because Southern, in the, in the you know, 70s and 80s, uh, yeah, 70s and 80s, Southern just was not a faithful school. They taught, they did not hold to any meaningful version of, it, of, of authority of the Bible. And it was just not a good place. And now Southern is a a place I deeply respect and deeply learn from. And largely that's because Moeller through the conservative resurgence, or maybe as a result of the conservative resurgence in the SBC wrenched the place into reasonable orthodoxy. And so I'm grateful for the product of, of, a, of an intense two decade long struggle ish. So it's very, very fascinating. You would also think that board, like it's all about board meetings. You'd think that'd be really boring. Oh, turned out it was actually like board meetings can be really interesting to read about. Especially when they're written in a poetic license way. Yes. I'm debating adding this to my list. What do you think? <clears throat> As someone who doesn't really have much context for Southern Baptist Seminary. Am I better off just taking this as a recommend to read something about Hamilton or wherever else I end up in my it, life? It is almost 600 pages. Yeah, it's quite long. Okay. So, okay, I probably won't then. I did. Sorry, like I read it in a week, but it it was kind of like... It was a sacrifice to read. Yeah, it's a pretty long book. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd probably say you could read other stuff. Okay. Well, my next book was Two Views on Women in Leadership, followed the last Views book up with another one. Oh. Uh, Zondervan or IVP? I want to say Zondervan, okay. but I could be wrong. I know there's two publishers that do this. Um, I liked it quite a bit. I I liked that all four of the authors acknowledged a lot of complexity to the topic. Two views? It's two views, but four authors. Hmm. So there's 
there's the authors are giving slightly different perspectives. Oh, I guess there's not too many views on. There's not. I know. Well, I thought they could have because the one guy was like, "I'm like a soft complementarianism," meaning like basically, the role of elder is reserved for men, but what that role entails is not as restrictive as you might think. That was his view. That was my favorite one. I really liked that one. Not to spoiler alert, what I thought of it, but I thought all of them were quite compelling. Um, one of them was a bit more combative, but but only in her chapter, and she it was it was almost like she. It wasn't that she was combative against the other authors. I just felt like she very much had a straw man of like a terrible version of conservatism and she was sort of knocking that down. So that chapter was a little weak, although some of her points were really interesting and I'd never heard them before. So I'd say, I'd say, yeah, super interesting book. Would totally recommend this to people. I am going to write that one down. That sounds interesting. My next one is Faulkner by Mary Shelley. So this is a book written by, obviously, the author of Frankenstein, but it is the last novel that she wrote. So Frankenstein is uh, the first or one of the first novels she wrote when she was quite young. Faulkner is the last one she wrote. Um, and you can tell when you read it. It's, she's grown up a lot in the process. Um, and she, it's, it's, it's really good. It's a story about a young girl who's orphaned, um, and she gets adopted kind of informally by this guy who has like a skeleton in his closet and stuff like this. But she, she saves him. He goes to commit suicide and she saves him. And when she's like a, a little kid and he just devotes the rest of his life to taking care of her. Um, and so it's actually kind of like this beautiful, what's interesting about it is she still has a lot of the Gothic um, themes and style in how she tells the story. Mm. So a lot of what people love Mary Shelley for is the -the over-the-top gothic way of telling stories. She has a lot of that still, but there are some really, um, actually, incredibly wholesome elements that are woven through. And when you get towards the ending, they they really kind of, like, own the day. So, actually, I I do recommend this one. I liked it so much better than Frankenstein. Very different genre-wise. There's no no one's making monsters. Hmm. But uh, it's just a much more mature novel by a someone who already is a teenager writing Frankenstein was already a very, very good writer, right? So this is what she she became very good. And no one even knows about her later stuff. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Um next one on my list is Mission Drift by Peter Greer and Chris Horst. Chris Chris Horst. Um yeah, very good. It's been recommended uh, to me in a few different ways. The basic premise of the book is they want to look at like, hey, we have these institutions, Harvard, Yale, um, a few nonprofits that were started explicitly Christian and now are pagan. And why is that? And what is the unique factor of the mission of these um, either seminaries or NGOs or businesses that were started Christian and stayed Christian? How did they stay that way? And what happened to those that drifted? And basically the point is, if you're starting a a business, ministry, organization, whatever, how do you set up your whatever it is in such a way that your mission and vision will live on long past you and not drift? Because Harvard was, was thoroughly and explicitly Christian when it was launched. Yale was a response to Harvard going pagan, and Yale was like, we will build what Harvard should have been. And then Yale went pagan. And so basically it looks at that. And it's very, it's very 
shot across the bow, very very easy to read, very much like, hey, this is how you should how you should do it. And uh, it, it was great. Really, really good book. Um, I quite recommend it. Gary Postma uh, has read this, I believe. He's recommended Unsurprising. it. Unsurprising. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, I'm going to lump two together. It's Spirituality of Fundraising by Henry Nowen. I uh, spoke about this a bit already. It's good. Uh, the God Ask, A Fresh Biblical Approach to Personal Support Raising by Steve Shadrach. This is the second time round through me, or second round going through it for me. Um, even potentially better the second time. Uh, obviously, it's very practical to me and Jake because we're support raising for Into the Light Ministries. And I just want to go through it very specifically to get... Uh, get retooled on the theology of giving and support raising as like a biblical category and then additionally to get like the practical tools in my tool belt uh to do support raising um the other element was i got like four people to do uh to read this book uh so, so that they could be do be doing support raising and i think i encourage you you to read it as well um Overall, I liked it. Like, there's a few caveats now that, like, on the second time going around, I feel like it's a bit individualistic. Uh, I did find that a little bit, but, yeah. But but other than that... If you try to read it graciously and not as, like, reading the Bible, it's... Right. Sorry, I should be talking to the mic for this. But, yeah, it's good. But overall, like, I thought it was just really good. And the thing I most, maybe most appreciated was how much he made his arguments from Scripture for the category of uh, ministries being propelled by the regular support of uh, fellow believers and not just like giving and kind of forgetting about it, but really seeking out people who want to partner with you uh, more than just giving dollars, partnering with you in the ministry by giving and then therefore receiving an eternal treasure in that sense. Mm -hmm. So, I know this is something I like to talk about often and it's kind of like maybe a something I'm particularly passionate about, but I love how he lays it out and it's a good book. Cool. Um, the Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. Have you read it? Nope. Just looked at it and wanted to read it. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, we've talked a little bit about Henry Nowen. Um, this book is really interesting. I didn't know what to expect with it. I just, again, I wanted to read more Nowen and someone had this at their house and said they would lend it to me. So while knowing nothing about it, I grabbed it. Um, and basically the book is that he was in an art gallery or no, I think he was at someone's house and they had a printing of the return of the prodigal son by like the painting, the return of the prodigal son by, uh, I just read this whole book about it. What was the painter's name? Rembrandt, the Dutch painter. And he was moved to tears. He couldn't stop looking at it. He was just staring at it for forever. And so he kind of went on this pilgrimage to like go to the art gallery where it actually was and just sat there for like pretty much almost a day looking at it and just absorbing different details of it and being very moved by it. And he also had to go on this long quest to try to find a printing of it because this is before the internet when you could just sort of order it. It was like... Not super long ago, but it was not easy to just come by whatever piece of art you wanted. So to get his own kind of replica of it, it was quite a difficult journey. So the book is interesting because it's a little bit biographical. It has little sections of stories from his life. It's also kind of art analysis and art history. He goes super in detail on like 
Rembrandt's life story. Yeah, as I'm saying, I kind of accidentally read an art book about Rembrandt and how he sort of had a prodigal journey, although it's a little bit more unclear about how he landed. Rembrandt was kind of a terrible person, to be honest. He did some pretty awful things. Um, Was just sort of a mean-spirited person, but but also did have a sense of spirituality as well. Um, And then it's also a theological treatise of the father, the brother, and the other brother. Mm. So I don't even know what genre to put this book in. It's really short and it's quite beautiful. If you are someone who's moved by art, I think you would enjoy it. Um, have you guys ever had that? Like with a piece I of have, art? I have, not quite to that level, but I've been in art galleries where I just can't stop staring mm. at something. Jake, we were just talking about art because I was saying I read a, a Henry Nouwen. Jake stepped out for a second, but I was saying I read a Henry Nouwen book which is basically just about his relationship to this painting by Rembrandt um, and how he was just ridiculously emotionally moved by it. And so he sort of wrote a whole book about that. It's, it's, it's also about the prodigal son and about his own life story and about Rembrandt's life, but also kind of just about the painting in some ways. So anyway, have you ever uh, like wanted to, to buy that paint, like a painting enough to like seek out a copy and hang it in your home. Um, I've done this once. Tell me about that. I it it doesn't resonate with me quite as much now. Uh, I still love the painting, and maybe it's because it's not hanging in my office, so I'm not like looking at it as much. But um, when we went on that road trip with uh, Mrs. Tickler, Jess, me, and you to sing, good mems, good mems, we stayed at a. I think it's like a hostel, not a hostel, like a Airbnb or something. Oh yeah, yeah. And there was a painting there of like a a, a gentleman in a black suit, carrying an umbrella, uh, and presumably his wife, like kind of holding on his arm, and he's holding the umbrella kind of like slightly over her, slightly over him, uh, and she's in a red dress, and it's it's very impressionistic. It's from the back, like their back. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why something about it like really struck me as far as like that being like a companionship hmm. thing, and something about him holding the umbrella and her holding her his arm, just like struck me as being so like wholesome. And at the time I was single, uh, it's just like I would love to, like the vision of that being like walking alongside someone uh, for a lifetime like that was just like beautiful and felt like it was captured in that painting. And I asked the homeowner if where they got it so I could like buy a print of it. And I couldn't like they they never responded about that. So I took a bunch of pictures of it and got a friend who was in art school to paint me a version of it that turned out like looking very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I remember I remember that painting. Yeah, so I paid a I forget what it was, like a couple hundred bucks hmm. to get the painting and I'm really glad I did actually. Yeah, I know Jordan Peterson and some other people are very big proponents of like, you should purchase some art because it's different when you pay something for it. Like, mm. not that you'd spend ridiculous amounts necessarily, but to, oh goodness gracious, sorry. Um, I just knocked the mic out. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a I have a painting from Opa that this is when he was in his somewhat abstract art phase. It's not like yeah, it's, it's fairly abstract. The one with like almost the mountains with holes mm-hmm. in them. I don't even know what to describe it. It's like almost like a futuristic city. Mm. I love that one and I feel like my imagination is very captured by it. 
I think more, yeah, there's some, there's some paintings that maybe make me like weep and are emotional and that's happened, but it's more often that a painting will really capture my imagination and I'll stare at it for a long time. I, do you guys feel the same way about like older things? Like vintage little pieces of, for some reason, like really good art and, and vintage aesthetics capture me in a similar way. Hmm. So, so I was driving to a family get together at the Rathbon and I pulled into a garage sale and the guy was selling uh, Marvel comics from the seventies and they're exactly what you'd expect. This old, like they're old, they're all like brown and weather beaten, but still in reasonably good condition. I bought a dozen for a couple bucks and I'm just so captivated by this little slice of like history, this 50 year old um, things that were just so part of like the, the art is very good like that like that era of comic I'm, I know nothing about comics but the the artistry inside it and the color scheme like pastel is just so good and I just love that that's a little slice of normal culture but also talent and, and artistry that from that era that that I have now and I don't know what to do with it I'll, I'm gonna make them into something at some point but Cool. That kind of feels like a similar thing, like trying to find a, a portion, an impression of life, a, a piece of an emotion or something, and then wanting to capture that and then honor it to some degree. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that's a cool vibe. Much I have nothing to do with comics, really, but it's, it's an aesthetic. It's a vibe. <clears throat> right. My next book is The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H.G. Wells. Hey. Hey. Um, so this one is, you guys have read some H.G. Wells, right? Yep. Yeah. So what I find interesting about him as an author is that he will write so diversely. One minute he's writing The Island of Dr. Moreau, and it's kind of almost like a horror mystery story. And then uh, he'll write The War of the Worlds, which is more sci-fi adventure. And he'll write First Men in the Moon, which is extremely light, frivolous, humorous kind of thing, right? This one um, is placed somewhere between some of those. So especially the beginning, it's funnier, and then it gets heavier and a little bit darker later on. The basic premise is that in The Food of the Gods, there's these two scientists who are friends, and they develop a they develop a substance that if eaten while one is still young and growing, will dramatically increase your potential growth ceiling and so you can end up with giant you basically you just end up with giant animals and giant people and stuff like that and at the beginning of it's very silly and there's some very funny things go on they try to have like an experimental farm where they can um they hire some some this couple who claim to know all about raising chickens and they're like okay fantastic you know all about raising chickens so what you're going to do is you're going to give the different different uh, solutions that we've come up with. You're going to give samples to the chickens and then you're going to measure them every day and all this other stuff. And they're sloppy and they don't do a good job. And the next thing you know, there's a chicken um, the size of a small house running around the place. And then like, uh, and they... How realistic is this? Like, so, Or is it kind of like charming a little bit? Or? It, it's, it's very silly. It feels almost like you're reading um, like Jonathan Swift kind of like silly, okay. crazy thing. Because I, I, a hyper-realistic version of that 
where a, a chicken the size of a house is an absolute Tyrannosaurus death machine. Right. You know and like, I mean? like that, that's hilarious. They have to like hunt it down and shoot it. Um, they but, do? But yeah. Oh, fun. And then they have, because uh, it's like almost ate someone's kid. Um, As it would. But then they have the, the, this little farm that they had. Like the rats got into it, the wasps got into it. Oh. They got scattered around. So all the plants got in. The, the, there's, there's like nettle that's the size of pine trees, and there's rats the size of like large wolves running around the place. And anyway, so then the this engineer friend of theirs gets a whole bunch of his guys, and they go down there, and they've got. It's so funny the way this guy plans the expedition against the experimental farm, because he like goes and he like buys all these guns and he buys all this like sulfur and all these different things that they're going to use to attack this place and, and get rid of these pestilences before they reproduce and wipe out humanity. And all this. But it's very funny. But then about halfway through the book, um, the implications of people having eaten this come up. And so then you've got these kids who are raised and the, the two main characters like, uh, one of them like dies of old age, and the other one is still alive. And but the, you've got their their kids are huge, and the implications of that. It suddenly starts getting very serious and philosophical, and you start thinking about um, themes that are more to do with what, does human technology sort of outgrow sort of the natural orders of the world we live in. And oh yeah, that's that's not a relevant conversation to be having right now. Right, and and so all of a sudden it gets completely serious, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is a completely grown up book. All of a sudden, and it ends on a really dark note. Um, but I don't know. Like, if you like H.G. Wells and you like that kind of thing, it's a, it's a fun read. It's not very long. I'm I'm super. I'm very interested in a lot of those themes. Um, yeah, my next book, uh, Mission Drift. We talked about that. Um, sorry, I talked about that. A Stand for Truth. We also talked about that. Uh, so 35 on my list. I'm, I'm approaching the end, boys. Um, Entree Leadership, Dave Ramsey. You've read this before. Is this uh, reread? Yeah, yeah, it's a reread. Excellent, excellent business book. Um, yeah, Ramsey knocks it out of the park. It, the kind of things I would... I'm hyped about it, and I would be hyped about it, but I, all my hype would kind of be around business stuff. He's just very good at talking about the different hats that you're supposed to wear, um, and especially inside of a family business, he's really good with just employee relations, compensation, just kind of the philosophy of being a business owner and just how to run a business well. Um, especially it's a book, uh, the name Entree Leadership is a combination of entrepreneur and leader. And he talks about like people who are the nexus middle ground about basically how to be that well. And it's just a fantastic book for business. If, if you are a business owner, I, I highly, highly recommend it. And it's really shaped a lot of the stuff we're trying to do as we have a few people that, we're, that we've employed um, as within to the light. We're trying to do that responsibly. What stood out to you, just briefly, what stood out to you differently this time reading it? Well, I had some actionable steps with like, so for example, like I'm, I'm working with one of our editors, right? And I just want to... Like his topics on communication are just good. It's it's more, I don't know if there was a specific takeaway that I was like, there might be one if I thought about it for five minutes, but it was just, it was just like overall being like, all right, I was an employee once. What were the things that frustrated me about my bosses? How can I really think through this to really try to get in their mind? So if, if I'm the editor listening to me, how best do I want to interact with that person to be like, wow, I'm having a really great experience here. So really finding the areas of like, okay, if you, if, if the people who are working for me do well, jump on that, 
affirm that. Say, that's exactly what I'm looking for. You're killing it. I'm grateful that you're on the team. And just really hammering those home. because you And then be very specific and clear with critiques so that you're like, hey, there's an area that, I, that that's not right, et cetera, et cetera. It's honestly kind of basic communication stuff. Conceptually, it's just hard to do in practice. You know what I mean? Uh, I read The Imperfect Board Member by Jim Brown. It's a, just a book about like running boards well, uh, the pitfalls. It's like a just a practical, solid little book. I literally just had it on my shelf, had no idea if it was good. And I've been thinking a lot about like boards right now, again, with Into Light. So I was like, I should read something on it. And it was good. I would say like that's a pretty good book title. Pretty bad author name, though. Jim Brown. Yeah. The most like old white guy yeah, name ever doesn't really do it for me but good book name Jesse coming in hot with the strategic critique of the guy's name <laughs> I suppose that's a critique for his parents though more oh for sure do better Mr. Brown yeah well like it's if, if Mr. Brown la- Sr. if your last name is Brown name your first kid something like Ferdinand or Agreed. you know or like yeah Brown can move or something like <laughs> <laughs> can move can the first? first name can last name Middle day Moo. All right. Ken Moo Brown. <laughs> All right. Sounds Chinese. Drax, are you, are you up? You're up. You're up. <laughs> we'll delete that out. All right. Anyway. Um, 29. Embodied transgender identities, mm. the church, and what the Bible has to say by Preston Sprinkle. Uh, wow. I really recommend this one. I, okay. Um, highly. So we had a slightly controversial topic going on in our book boys group chat, talking through, um, some people really liked what is a girl worth and, or sorry, not what is a girl worth. Sorry. What is a woman? What is a woman? Oh, and I was some people, like, no, we all love. No, what I'm is sorry. A girl I'm worth. sorry. I, how dare. Wow. Those acronyms are really similar. If you think about them. Anyway, what is, is a woman. Some of us really enjoyed it. Some of us didn't enjoy it as much. So my critique of it after watching it was, I don't Are know. You can out yourself as one of the people who. Didn't yeah, I was it. the one who didn't like it. Okay, just want to get that on the table. True. true I just true, want to true. make sure people know that I fully endorse every element of that documentary with all of my being. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things that could get redacted. <laughs> okay. Sarcasm intended. I, I did really love the documentary. Though. Okay. So, I didn't enjoy it. And my critique afterwards was, I don't know who I would recommend this film to because to someone who agreed with it, it felt like it would kind of be a bit of an echo chamber. And then for someone who disagreed with it, I didn't think it built bridges or gave like a constructive framework for like how to approach it. It. What do you want to say something? <laughs> Go for it. Uh, I was going to say having only those two categories of type of watchers presumes that the people who agree with it are actually educated enough. I didn't think it did a good job of educating or inspiring them. Cause I would say even myself, it's like, I've read but inspired you to what it inspired me to care more about the issue and do something about it, which now like, even like, for okay. example, with into the light, it's like, yeah, that was something we talked about after watching them. Like i really really want to make sure we make this a priority at some point okay well anyway um that is not the point of what i'm trying to say what i was going to say is that that was my critique of it i feel the opposite about this book where i would basically recommend it to anyone so 
if somebody was feeling very fearful and confused about what's going on in the world, I would say this would be a good starting point for educating yourself about where the other side is coming from. Not in a like, here's the big Marxist conspiracy behind it, which that's also valuable to know about. Um, and we've talked about some great books to read on that, but more to think about like the actual people who are, who are, uh, here. And then if somebody was very fearful and confused about why the church seems to be against them, I would also say this would be a great educational resource for a background on a biblical thing. So this is just a book that I recommend to anyone. Is it perfect? No. And there's a few things that I think will be very controversial probably to some readers. Like for instance, he argues for pronoun hospitality, meaning like using people's preferred pronouns. Um, he understands the argument against it well, and I think presents both sides of it well. And then he's like, here's where I land on it. So that would be controversial for a lot of people. But I think this is a great book that didn't come from a fearful place or lead you to a more fearful place, even though it was very educating and like real about the topic. So, um, I also thought it was, it was highly accessible, but it didn't feel shallow. It went pretty deep on things. So, and written very pastorally. I, I just am a big Preston Sprinkle fan. So, yeah. I feel like, tell me if this is right, one of the meaningful differences, because, you know, the documentary, um, What is a Woman, and this book are both about the transgenderism issue. But that book sounds like it's really like, hey, let's look at the people that are behind it, like transgender individuals, yeah. and the tensions they're going through, the biblical worldview, Christians, just kind of those things. I feel like What is a Girl Worth? Uh, sorry, uh, What is a Woman? I've heard of this, you guys. What is a Woman? was actually less about those specifically struggling with transgender and much more about the academic, foolish, arrogant people who are propping up that as an ideology. Sure. And I feel like there's a good, I believe, and you can argue that it wasn't done well, I believe there's a place for ridicule for people who are who are in positions of power and teaching who are actively putting forward damaging nonsense. And I sure. think you can have that and also say if someone was genuinely struggling with gender dysphoria of a, of a patient, coffee, I want to understand that kind of thing. Sure. That, that'd be kind of, I don't know, something that maybe yeah. was worth the conversation. I, and you can also still think that. I'm, I'm not particularly interested in ridicule. I, get, I do understand your point. I, I agree that there are some things that are worthy of ridicule, but I'm not interested in that. Sure. I, I think for a topic that feels deadly serious like this to me, it's not that I'm above... Like all, all <clears throat> you guys know me. I'll joke about almost anything under the sun. But I, I was like, this is not a topic I'm particularly interested in ridiculing the other side. I want to try to genuinely understand it. And I didn't feel like what is a woman was actually a good faith attempt to under like the the sort of joking premise was like, what is a woman? I'm going to ask people open ended questions. It wasn't a good faith attempt yes. to understand the other side. No, not at all. It's true. So anyway, um, it's not not a perfect book, but I think it's <clears throat> worth the read. Yeah, I definitely will read I'm it. I plan on reading it as well. Great, yeah, awesome. Sure. I I have my disagreements with Preston Sprinkle. I'm sure you guys will have lots you disagree with with sure. this book. But, but he, he's undoubtedly a very, very clear thinker. And yes, I, I've very loved clear his thinker. podcast for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's got to be part of whatever roster you decide to read on this. Yeah. I'll also be... I'm, I've already added that now to my list of books that I'm taking away from here is recommendations that I'll probably read um, probably in the next six months or so. Uh, the only thing I would clarify is that when we mention Marxism in relation to the rise and triumph of the modern self, I wouldn't say that uh, Carl Truman uh, was trying to promote some conception of a Marxist conspiracy so much. You're right. You're right. Uh, that was erroneous. 
Okay, I, I just wanted to clarify that for the sake of, because it's actually, if nothing else, even regardless of your comment, I'm not trying to like pull your comment out or anything like that, but it's worth noting that he didn't tie Marxism in as being like, aha, this is what communism was all about after all, right? He, it's definitely more just trying to give you a sense of how modern thought has been shaped. Um, my next book is The Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. So this is the guy who wrote Dracula. Um, this is, it's weird. um i would i would like it's very well written um and if you like that sort of turn of the century horror um it's one that's worth adding to your stack uh i would love it though if other people would read it um so that we could then talk about what the heck went on in it um uh the jewel of seven stars i i just it's one of those books where by the end of it i'm I'm sitting there i'm looking at i'm going okay i absolutely need three other people to have read this right now <laughs> because I need to I need to brainstorm what actually is because the author was pretty intentional um, and he actually had an alternate ending so he wrote it published it and then <clears throat> republished it a few years later with a different ending Dog. I read both endings trying to find clarity and <laughs> uh, and this other chapter he took a chapter out in the second uh, edition as well. And I read the chapter that he took out and everything, so I'm trying to like hunt down his meaning. Uh, really, kind of like it gives you it gives you the sense that he had this meaning in there. All the clues are there that he had some actually coherent notion. And the fact that he t- spent that time editing and creating a different edition gives you the sense that he was clarifying that that intentional meaning. But it's not easy to find. So <laughs> I would love it if someone else would waste some time reading this and then chatting about it with me. If you two make a pact that you'll read it with me, I'll read it. I will read it. I like Bram Stoker. I really enjoyed. Okay, Jarka. so we'll have this done before the next book podcast. I, think yeah, I commit. Okay, I commit. It's free on Audible, boys. Oh, sorry. It's seven stars for seven wonders of the the, the jewel the, of seven stars. The jewel of seven stars. <laughs> 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 even close. Seven rides, seven brothers. Okay. This has been my fun. This, <laughs> rings the ball. this has been my fun fact that I've been telling everyone. I've randomly found that artist with the moon's a harsh mistress who I've been obsessed with. He like not only wrote that song, but he also wrote the Highwayman song that like Johnny Cash and all those other guys sing. And he composed the soundtrack for Seven Brides of Seven Brothers. <laughs> I found this song that I like got obsessed with, like from the seventies, total niche, like had never heard of it before. And then I just was like on his Wikipedia page, like, who is this guy? But anyway, he's kind of written for like all the big pop and country singers in the 70s and 80s. So anyway, but also composed that wonderful, wonderful soundtrack that I love with all my heart. Do you like that soundtrack? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Bless your beautiful hide. Banger. Banger soundtrack. Can you believe that? (laughs) Terrible movie. I do not like that movie. (laughs) What? I mean, it's problematic, but it's good. <laughs> it's problematic. <laughs> it's deeply problematic. It's prob- like biblical. It's deeply it's problematic. Like the sons of yeah, okay, but that's not. <laughs> that story is also problematic. You didn't just sanctify it for me. <laughs> Here's my thought. I don't think it's more problematic than Beauty and the Beast. What? It is clearly, it is clearly more problematic than beauty. It is they were asking for it. <laughs> no, Jamal. Okay, we're also editing. I'm kidding. That out. I'm kidding. Um, okay, <laughs> I think, I think, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a film about uh, these guys who 
are like. Yeah, explain it. <laughs> explain it. It actually feels horrible when you try to put it in plain English. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna try my best. Okay, so <laughs> it's terrible. These these fellas are up in the woods and they love just living like with their family and like farming and stuff. And then one of the brothers meets a girl and falls in love and brings her back his wife. And they're all like, "Whoa, having a wife seems great. Like companionship." And she like does your laundry and stuff. That's that's the start of the problematicism. This was made a long time ago. But anyway, then the boys read like a Bible story or a history story or something about this happening, and they're like, "And the, well, there is a Bible story startlingly similarly, but." Okay, let's. Uh, you're not. Oh, and just you're let not, me explain it. You're not giving Jesse a bone here. But, Come on. But they go into town on horseback and just grab a bunch of women. <laughs> pretty much at rent. And take them back. And then basically, they're, the they're basically like. And they, re- they realize that it's wrong, and so they start attempting to return them to the town. But then, a, but then an avalanche happens and blocks the path, so they're stuck there all winter. But then over the course of the winter, the women end up falling in love with them and they do end up marrying the seven brides for the seven brothers. So so, critics would say that it was, (laughs) that this is Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Critics would say, anyone with any wholesome commentary would say that this is awful. Go on. So and I was introduced to, I was introduced to this film as a grown adult. <laughs> Someone was like, "Oh, you never saw this movie? It's a classic. You got to watch this movie." And I like the classics. I'll sit down and watch The Bridge on the River Kwai for the 100th time. I love the classics. I sit down and I watch this movie and I'm like, "Wait. Are they Is this a musical and they're literally singing about the rape of the Sabine women? Like, this is outrageous. This is how is this like I think it was like a Disney movie. I think it was a Disney movie. Like, it's an old, like, wholesome musical kids movie. And I'm like, this, I am horrified. I am fully unhappy and horrified for the entire film. Okay. Okay, okay. The, the men are basically super naive and, like, have no, no! social skills. And they've, basically, and they've basically never met a woman in their life. They don't, they don't actually force them to marry them or anything. The women live in, like, a separate house the whole time and everything. It's unfortunate that 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 they made the mistake in the first place, and that the avalanche blocked them off for the winter. But I don't know. I what am I hearing right now? <laughs> Look, I just they made I'm not a mistake. saying that this is <laughs> y'all captured women and stole them from their homes. I sound like that one book that you're talking about. They they made an immature mistake. <laughs> Something they can talk about in their accountability session with their dad. Um, what immature behavior. <laughs> yes, you need immature behavior. Okay. Man stealing? Women stealing? It was oh. kidnapping, but I don't think it was anything worse than that. Okay. Sure. Yeah. On that yeah, no, I guess the only defense is that they were essentially like very large asexual children. Like they yeah. were they were really not really in it for the really dark reasons. They were just like, Oh, I want someone to make me a pie and they yeah, run was- off and like kidnap <laughs> women. Like <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> it. Wait, is this a cartoon or is this live no, action? No, it's like a black and white film. It's not black and white, but it is live action. Okay. Well, I agree that the morals aren't black and white, but <laughs> <laughs> It definitely is black and white for the record. You may have watched a colorized version. Okay. I've definitely seen a color version. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, <laughs> moving on from that. <laughs> who's who's next? Is it me? <laughs> wow, here's a tonal shift. Um, <laughs> I, I can't. Just take a breath or something. Uh, next on my list. Before the sex talk, Linda Noble and Linda Stewart. It's a uh, it's a couple of moms who are who wrote this this book for other parents, and they're really they're really approaching this topic um, from a theology of the body Catholic perspective. I think they're Protestants, but they got really influenced by by JP two's TOB, and um, they wrote a book. It was fine. It had a couple helpful things. Um, yeah, moving on. Um, yeah, this book is one of the sadder books that I've read, actually maybe ever. Um, it's Perfectly Normal by Robbie Harris and Michael Emberley. Uh, so it's, uh, so this is a book used in a lot of public schools, uh, in the States and like there's videos on the internet of like parents fighting it and like different schools trying to get it out of their, even just their libraries, but it's not just in libraries. It's actually used uh, with nine-year-olds and up. Uh, and basically, it's a sex education book. I wanted to read it because I saw it referenced in some documentaries and other places, just to read <coughs> primary sources of what's going on. And uh, it was horrifying. Like, it, the book, like, with, it's one of those things that I'm like, do not read it. And yet I almost wish you could read it. It's got full color images, like drawings of nude people having sex, men with men, women with women, like transgender sexuality happening, like nude pictures of everything. Uh, and in the book, it teaches how to have, um, like just trigger warning real quick, uh, oral sex, anal sex, uh, just normal sex, like it gives description on how to do that, how to do that well. And again, some of it, it's like, it's all mixed in with good, straightforward health class kind of stuff. So it's like, you know, it's a little awkward, whatever. Uh, but it's details and descriptions of how the body works. And yet interspersed everywhere is, is like, uh, you know, mommy, daddy, or whatever they, uh, or whoever they are, like whether you have two moms or two dads, uh, you know, it's just important to remember that it's perfectly normal. And that's like the tagline that's constantly being pushed and everything is like, yeah, some people like want to have sex with, with women and other people want to have sex with men or both. Uh, you might feel, you know, and it just goes through all sorts of different examples trying to say it's perfectly normal. Uh, and they recommend using it with nine-year-olds and up. So it's just like, it is horrifying. I hated reading it. Um, but is it was good that I did because this is what's being used and there's over a million copies sold. So there's plenty of them out there being used with, with people. Uh, so anyways, just heavy kind of sucks, but it reading it made me feel like more fuel to the fire of like, we need good resources to equip people because there's plenty, the other side pushing the other agendas. So Uh, my next book was The Alchemist by Paul Coelho. Has anyone read this? Heard of it. Um, so this came recommended from a friend as 
their their like favorite book very special to them. Um, and unfortunately, I just am really sad to report that it didn't quite connect with me in the same way. It was it was good, but um, it almost kind of had like a like a fairy tale tone, if that makes sense. But but didn't quite. I don't know. It was like too detailed to be a fairy tale, but too fairy tale like to feel like a normal book. I don't really know how to describe it. But anyway, it just sucks when something is special to one person and then doesn't quite connect with someone else. Jacob watched me have to break the news to this person. So so sorry. Thank you so much for lending it to me, though. I've only got one more book left. How, how far are you guys along here? I've got two. I have eight more. Okay, I have, I probably have like six more, five or six more entries, so. Cool. Looks like we're in the last half hour or so. Yeah. Uh, my next one is Brewster's <coughs> Millions uh, by George Barr McCutcheon. And this one is a humorous book written in 1902, I believe. Um, it's The premise is really funny. It's actually been made into a couple different movies since then. Um but the the original, the basic premise is this guy inherits a million dollars from his grandfather. His grandfather passes away. And then like a week later, he hears that he has this uncle who has passed away and left him $7 million. But the uncle was on really bad terms with the grandfather. And he doesn't want his money mixing with that guy's money. So this guy, the main character, Brewster the terms of the receiving the $7 million is that he first has to spend the million dollars he has received until there is not a penny left of it. He has to be perfectly penniless by a certain date, which is like a year away. Um, and if he's got, if he, and he has to like keep receipts for everything and he can't just give the money away and all, there's all these terms to it. Uh, he has to spend it in certain ways. And then if he is perfectly penniless at that time, um, then he will receive $7 million. And so he then, the it's kind of a fun premise because there's a few kind of game rules that you, you lay out at the beginning that oblige him to spend the money and he's not allowed to tell anyone about this. So he starts spending this million dollars super irresponsibly. Now, if we did this today, it would be like, we have to up the numbers quite a bit. You can spend a million dollars in a year without trying too hard, right? But uh, I would like a 750 square foot home anywhere in Ontario. Thank yeah, you very literally, much. right. So um, he has to like spend his million dollars, but he's like throwing big parties and like literally like hosting parades and taking people on a yacht cruise and doing all this other stuff. And he's having to very carefully do the math so that he runs out of money on exactly the right day. <laughs> and the entire and also the money he has is accruing interest, so he has to try like fight against that as he goes. And he's. He's trying so hard to like do the math right and keeps track of all the receipts and he and he lays at the end of the book he like lays out all of the he has like a chart with like all of the different expenditures uh, that he has to like submit as evidence of how he spent the million dollars um, and it involves armed robbery. There's this funny scene where he gets robbed and um, he writes it off as an expense. He writes it off as an expense because he got robbed at like knife point and as he's getting robbed he's like man oh man reach into this pocket right here I got some cash in there and like he's like making sure that this guy <laughs> gets as much money off of him as possible because he's like this is a great opportunity to lose a bit of money. Uh, <laughs> so it's a very very funny book. Um, it's yeah written in 1902. There's some there's some odd stuff in it that's like well this wouldn't wouldn't fly today. Some stuff that's not very politically correct but 
Uh, it is quite amusing. It's a, it's a really fun premise. Anytime I think politically incorrect, I just think of wife stealing. <laughs> That's just what comes to mind. A picture of Jesse defending wife stealing. Yes. He's like, no, seven brides are seven brothers. It's good stuff, man. This is what we should show our kids for sure. <laughs> <coughs> Do you have anything to say, no, Jesse? No, it's, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's your turn, Jake. I thought you were mounting a, def- a defense for... No, I've I've said too much. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, anyways. Um, the Pearl by John Steinbeck. Uh, and you guys read it? Nope. No way. Um, yeah, definitely my least favorite Steinbeck. It was interesting. It, it, so this was about a... Um, <clears throat> this plot's fairly simple. There's a um, Mexican pearl diving community. Very, very poor. And one of the the young men discovers a pearl that is like huge like like life-changing money and just gets chaotic from there kind of in a typical Steinbeck-y kind of way um amazing how he just because i feel like everything i've read from him is like kind of western dust bowl kind of vibes and this was just apparently he could just seamlessly translate into like uh into mexican coastal culture very well and make that convincing from what i know of mexican coastal culture which is not much honestly but it felt meaningfully tonally distinct from his other stuff, at least what the culture, like the culture he was trying to articulate, however well he did it. But it's very distinct. And so it's just interesting. Um, don't really recommend it, to be honest. It was, it was fine, but it was just not great. So, <clears throat> The Trinitarian Controversy, uh, edited by William Rush. Uh, it's basically a compilation of translated... Uh, works of just church fathers uh kind of debating on the trinity back and forth some of them being like mostly mostly orthodox people but kind of letters back and forth uh is is interesting not super long it's part of a course don't have too much to say there i'll do i'll do a couple because uh just we end roughly the same uh the pilgrim's progress by john bunyan i i've read the young the like the young kids version which is like shorter I actually loved this. I had low expectations because I've heard people critique it. I people really enjoyed it. I wasn't going to call Jake out. I was going <laughs> to let I was going to let him speak. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And actually, reading through it, there was times that I was struck by like the straightforward simpleness of like, uh, shameful is going to be a character, and you know exactly what he's going to do. And yet the dialogues interacting with Christian are actually really interesting. Yeah, Shameful struggled with shame. Yes. Yeah, okay, I, I won't <laughs> spoil anything, but... <laughs> yeah, d- spoiler alerts, uh, their names oh, are who thought. they are. So three out of four of us enjoy A Series of Unfortunate Events, and three out of four of us enjoy... John Bunyan. Uh, John, uh, and I made me realize that, I guess, like, in a sense, The Pilgrim's Progress is sort of like A Series of Unfortunate Events, and maybe Jake just wasn't like his... He wasn't like... But, primed for that, you know, but also that kind of like intensity. The thing that I was struck by reading it was like when you zoom out enough on the Christian life, a lot of this the roadblocks become more like, oh yeah, of course. Like, why would you find riches so alluring uh, when? In, the, in an eternal perspective, you know that they're not going to satisfy uh, or 
uh, lust or, you know, pick pick vices or different traps that the devil tries to use uh, that in the moment do feel so alluring and like uh, even just so unclear that they are veering off the path. Um, so I just like appreciate it because it kind of was like a zoom out. He's always like seeing the celestial city afar and being like, that is the, the call of the Christian life to like lift your head up from what's going on and to see like your ultimate telos. Mm. So I just, I was encouraged by it and it kind of felt like a book I'll read semi-regularly. Cool. Yeah. Okay. My final book is Faith, Hope, and Carnage by Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're digging that title. I dug it too. That's basically why I read it. Faith, Hope, and Carnage. Okay. So Nick Cave is a musical artist that I discovered, which he's, he's quite popular. Like I'm sure you guys have heard the name, if not his music. National Treasure. Have, have you? Well, I don't know. No, I, I don't want to assume that you have. It would be not surprising if you had or hadn't heard of him. But that was a joke, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a joke. Nick Cage, though. Nick Cave. Yeah, okay. Because you were like, you just rolled with that, and I'm like, yeah, I know the humor you're making. Oh, sorry, sorry. Nick Cage. Oh, I thought you were saying he is a national treasure, <laughs> like the way people would be like, oh, Randy Newman or national treasure. No. Okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm so sorry. I totally. <laughs> Totally missed that. Good joke. No, it was good. It was a good joke. <clears throat> I found his music from like, I, I had a friend who I used to go to thrift stores with and we would buy the weirdest album covers and then just go on long drives and like listen through the albums we found. And so I picked up this album called uh, Henry's Bad Dream or something. And it was these incredibly disturbing storytelling songs, like just dark subject material i was really intrigued though and so i kind of have been following him i wouldn't say i'm like a diehard fan but i've, I've kind of followed his music for for i guess like a, a decade now and an interesting so some again he's been in punk bands since the 60s and has made maybe more singer songwriter music since then some of the most disturbing stuff out there but through the tragic death of like two of his sons actually in different times different accidents um he found religion. I say religion because that's how he calls it. Um, and by religion, I mean Christianity. Um, most people don't usually talk about Christianity as religion, but he, he likes that term, um, which is just sort of the opposite of the narrative you're often presented with, with someone like has a tragedy and they start to deconstruct. He almost kind of constructed. So I would say his Christianity is very unorthodox or, and you know, the book is absolutely rife with swearing and all kinds of references that, good Christians quote unquote shouldn't do. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying this is a book that someone should read as like, this is a great piece of Christian literature or anything. And, and it's not really totally about faith. It definitely deals with themes of faith, but it's really just his discussions with his friend about art and grief um, and, and just other things. So the book, the book is actually interviews like the audiobook is is them going back and forth. It's not a podcast where they just recorded it. It's as if they did the whole thing as an interview and then edited it, sent the interview to an editor to like make it more book like. So it's quite an unconventional format for a book. <clears throat> I am not sure if I should recommend it. It's brilliant at parts, and then some parts are just wildly pretentious. Like he's such an artist in like that meaning of the word. Like he just, he can go on and on talking about art and stuff and like his thoughts on the right way to be creative. So 
if you have like a stomach for that, there's occasional parts that are just like brilliant. Is it kind of like listening to John Mayer talk about anything? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. Different than him, but same idea yeah, of like yeah, someone yeah. who is, you could accuse them potentially being self-absorbed. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I'm quite enjoying it, but I'm also a fan of his. So maybe maybe a litmus test for if you would enjoy this is like listen to his newest album, uh, Ghosting. And if you hate it, definitely do not read this book. If you love it, maybe you should. I don't know. And you finished the book or are you midway through? Uh, I have one chapter left. Okay. Gotcha. <clears throat> uh, my next book is The Wrong Box uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson and his... I love that title. Uh, his stepson. Uh, what's his, his stepson's name was Osborne. And it is... A, I didn't know that he wrote stuff with his stepson, but apparently they did. Hmm. Um, and he even credits uh, his stepson with being part of his sort of creative, inspirational uh, journey in writing Treasure Island and stuff like that. But this one is completely different than anything else I've ever read by Stevenson. It's extremely funny. Um, it's a bit dark. Uh, it's definitely in that sort of that black humor kind of category. And the basic premise is that you have... Um, a weird financial situation and a weird inheritance situation. And this guy and his uh, brother and their uncle are in a train crash. And they think they're, they find a body who, when they're like running around in the wreckage afterwards that they think is their uncle. And because of something to do with the inheritance, they don't want their uncle to be dead yet. Um, because they don't want him to die before this other guy. They want this other guy to die first so that the money will go to their uncle so that then they'll get the money when their uncle dies. Um, and so they end up like hiding the body and then like mailing the body to themselves back in London and the labels on the packaging gets swapped and the body ends up going to different people and then the other people are suddenly roped in. They're like, "What? why did I get shipped a body? And they're right. freaking out. And then... <laughs> And it's a, a very odd, but like you're reading, you're like, this is staggeringly funny. <laughs> it's called The Wrong Box. It's, like, it's like, it's so dark, but like, it's also extremely funny. And the characters that he writes are like <clears throat> these big, verbose, hilarious characters who are just like immediately like they get shipped a body and they're like, well, I guess I'm... I'm in an adventure now, quickly. And like they just, this this other guy just like, quick, well, I guess we're just going to grab a grand piano and stuff the body in there and then <laughs> <laughs> ship that to somebody else. And like, yeah, like they don't even like stop for a second and go, oh man, I wonder if I should call the police. They're like, no, the police will think we murdered him. And then <laughs> <laughs> like everything that happens is completely ridiculous, but it is, it is bizarrely funny. Yeah. If I had to describe Owen's taste in books, I think I would probably say it as like people who are trying to receive inheritance money but have some very strange loopholes they need to get through in order to receive it. Does that is that your your taste summed the up? Last two apparently, yeah. <laughs> what an oddly similar pair of books, like uh, not intentional at all. I'm not it, like ah, funny books about people whose uncles die. Like, but turns out that the <laughs> uncle didn't actually die. Oh. And he was alive the whole time. They made a mistake. And his body is a complete stranger. Place, I'm not gonna lie. Oh, no, you find that out really early in the book. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not like an end of the book spoiler. Okay. Yeah. It would be really funny to 
to try to like summarize one another's book tastes. Like trying to be like, in a couple words, what would you describe? Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, John Michael might be Catholic. <laughs> but also fascinated by sexual ethics. Which is, oh yeah, there we go. Um, I was going to go there too. Uh, last book on my list is uh, Mythology, Timeless Tales of Gods and Heroes <clears throat> by Edith Hamilton. So there's a bit of a story here. Um, I went to Europe and one of the first people I I got to interact with when traveling with Micah Ostroff was his older brother, Richard. Richard, I want to try and keep this concise is a remarkable person. Um, he is a professor of um, a professor of the history of science during the modern period, I think early modern. And he, so he's a pure, pure academic. And talking to him was absolutely fascinating because he's the most like, in a lot of ways, he's the most like Jordan Peterson I've ever met in that he's a, he feels to me, this is, I've known him, knew him for a few days. That's it. He feels to me like someone who's a genuine, um, integrated academic person. So for him, like, for example, learning the languages was something that he did, like learning French, learning Latin, was something he did because that was the kind of person he wanted to be. Not because it was just something you know, he had to do for a job. Does that, make, does that kind of make sense? And so... Anyways, we had these long discussions, and when he would reference ideas, he would be referencing, honestly, like a stream of Western thought. He could navigate through Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas. It, just, it was just wildly interesting. Um, all that to say is through spending some time with him, talking to some other scholars and academics there, some scholars in Cambridge, Peter William, people who are in academia, in Christian academia even, at the highest levels, I just got really inspired to to do that well. I, I want to do PhD work and I want to excel at it. And one of the things that kind of was went with that was that for a lot of these guys um, and girls, the original, some of the, the, the primary sources were so important to them. And reading the primary sources in their own languages were so important to them. For them, it was like, if, if you're going to read Bavink and you claim to be a Bavink scholar, you read Bavink in Dutch. That's what he wrote it as. Like, you must understand these things. Read the classics in Latin if you know your Latin well enough, and you, sh and you should. I'm not there yet, not even close. But I kind of made a commitment to read um, a classic, read something read a, a, a classic and meditate on a classic. So I'm midway through um, uh, Plato's Republic right now. Uh, it's taken a while to get through, but I, what I did was, and so it's not on my list, it'll be on the next one. I'm midway through the Republic. What I did was I listened to a few Harvard lectures first. So about three hours worth of Harvard lectures to really understand the Republic before I dove into it because it's a complex book. And I plan to do this with some some other books. But before that, I was like, you know what? I kind of want to brush up on my mythology, uh, my Greek mythology. And so this book was really cool because Edith Hamilton was, she's writing, she's telling you the Greek stories, the Greek, the, all the heroes, the whole all mythology, the gods, the pantheon, all this stuff. 
but she does it from a more academic point of view. So she'll be like, okay, here's this and this story. It was really popular during this era. I mostly, I'm mostly getting my work from, um, from Sophocles and a little bit of Ovid, but mostly I'm leaning on this as a source because of these reasons. And then she would kind of intersect it with like, okay, so we have this myth of Bacchus, of um, Dionysus, you know, who, um, and, and, and it's really connected because he was the uh, goddess of, god of vine, about the dying and being reborn again. And that's just a really big theme in his work. And we know this from the Eleusidian mysteries, which we know almost nothing about, except, and she's like kind of drawing these themes. What we do know about them, Cicero wrote a letter about a daughter, one of his daughters who died and said, as we know from the Eleusinian mysteries, we will see her again. And so she's just like kind of drawing these lines here. She being like, okay, we don't know much about the Eleusinian mysteries. We do know that um, these Dionysus reborn, the vine dies every year, gets reborn every year is what's connected. And we do know that at least the Greeks believed from Cicero about the re- uh, some sort of resurrection so, and she just kind of ties the bow on that idea. So here's a couple of things we can pull from this particular story. Moving on. So it was a much more like in the trenches academic look at what we know about the Greek myths and what that tells us about their culture. Excellent. It was very, very interesting because it's more than just here are the stories. Fun. Isn't Hercules cool? It was very much like, yeah, academic. And I, I got a huge kick out of it. And so I, I think that's a, I want to, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to impact my life. It won't really. But it is nice to just kind of have a good grasp of the classics. And I might go read Percy Jackson after this and just kind of re-get a kick out of them because those books are dope. Uh, next for me, Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. It's a Puritan paperback. I really enjoyed it. Did it uh, in a book study. And I just want to be regularly reading the Puritans because I find it hard, but they're really good. Uh, and Repentance is something that I would like to read more on because I just really and convinced that that's the difference between a walk that looks very similar to like true change and true like truly hating sin and one that doesn't and it seems like repentance is the difference um i'll do another one the story of christianity volume one the early church to the dawn of the reformation by justo gonzalez uh just a church history book uh the Madness of Crowds. We already talked about that with Doug, by Douglas Murray. Uh, Let's study the Philippian or Let's study Philippians by Saint Clair B. Ferguson. Uh, it's good, just like a, a book directly on Philippians, which I've been studying. Uh, Rediscovering the Church Fathers by Michael Haken, which is great. Uh, and I'll let you take one next. Are you did? done? So I had the I had the immense privilege of having Dr. Haken for a class for the winter semester. And that guy is fantastic. Like almost like the class aside, like it was a core course I just had to take on development of like Western culture and stuff like that. Um, but I really enjoy him for classroom presence. Uh, since you mentioned his book, and I had a book by him on here as well. Um, just a shout out to Dr. Mm-hmm. Michael Haken. Really r- a real gentleman. Um, I've heard that from several people, actually. Yeah, you know what? Because you have different professors, and you start sort of deciding what you like for like a classroom presence from different profs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love Haken. Also, fantastic voice. He like booms. It was actually a pretty small classroom that we were in with mm-hmm. him, uh, and he had a voice that could have handled an auditorium. 
So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it was it honestly was great. All right, my next. I'm going to put three together. Uh, they're all by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, they are none of them Sherlock Holmes stories. <clears throat> they are all his uh, Professor Challenger <clears throat> stories. <clears throat> so you know the Lost World. Genesis one. No, the Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Nope. No. Um, so it's. Okay, it's um, a story about this, uh, these people who find that there's this land in the Amazon, like it's a giant plateau, but it's the, the sides of it are so sharp that nothing can go up or down. And on top of it, there are all these like dinosaurs and stuff living that have just been sort of like preserved here because they didn't interact with the rest of the world for all this time. Um, and it's, it's a kind of a goofy premise for sure, but there's this outrageous character named Professor Challenger who convinces everyone that they got to go and see this land that he's discovered. And so these characters go with him and they find it and they have wild, just completely out to lunch adventures uh, in the lost world. And I had read this previously as a kid. I read it again. I was like, this Professor Challenger character is nuts. So I set out to read all of the Professor Challenger stories. Uh, I read another novel by him called The Poison Belt. And the premise for that one is that you, Earth passes through like a cosmic belt of poisonous gas. And Professor Challenger somehow has like predicted that this is going to happen or is starting to happen. And as we go through, human beings start collapsing. And... So that's that one. There's a couple of short stories as well. And then the third novel they wrote with Professor Challenger is called The Land of Mist. And The Land of Mist is interesting because he took his established character and the supporting characters for the Professor Challenger world that he had going. And he used it to write basically an apologetic for his uh, involvement in the spiritualist movement of the 1920s. So you're probably aware that he was like massively into the spiritualist movement. Uh, he was really into seances. Mm -hmm. And he was like, he wasn't just like, yeah, there's probably a spiritual realm. He was whatever the over-the-top kind of next level, well, I probably wouldn't believe that. That's a little out there. He was like about it. There was and, like a whole movement like with fairies and stuff like that too. So yeah, I mean, he, he believed in the, the, what were they called? The... Coddington fairies or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was definitely, he, he believed in that and promoted them. Uh, like those two little girls who took pictures of the, mm, the, yeah, the yeah. yeah. So he was a big supporter of that, but he was huge into uh, spiritual mediums and seances and um, so much so that I'm like reading and I'm like, oh man, he's, he's asking people and he, so he writes it almost like, it's almost like the spiritualist movement version of like God's Not Dead. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, like, I assume I'm just like coming cold into this. I assume that we all have issues with that film, like, <laughs> right? Like, it's it's obviously a terrible movie, right? And it's like the we've said a lot of controversial things on this podcast. This is the most controversial. Is it? Am I? Am I gonna get flagged from John Michael? Can be like, no, Owen, I watched that movie on the weekly, like. Owens, Michael's biggest criticism is there wasn't quite enough wife kidnapping going on in that movie. For his <laughs> That's Jesse's problem. That's Jesse's problem with it. I do not want to be lumped in with Jesse's wife kidnapping. <laughs> anyway, so in this book, he's like, I'm going to explain to you about the spiritualist movement. And 
he he sets out and like every character you meet who's like a spiritualist or medium or something like that, oh man, they're so sweet and down to earth and they got a sense of humor about themselves and they're just super compelling individuals. And then you meet people who are like skeptics and they're like the worst. And they're like all jerks and they mock and they persecute and they and they and they, they, they they're skunks for sure. And then at one point he's like, Oh yeah, and definitely there are some frauds out there, you know, because he's he's trying really hard to predict objections right. and answer them in a compelling way, which for the record makes for a a book that is terrible as a novel, right? Because he's still trying to write a novel still, right. but it's terrible as a novel. I actually love it as a book because it's so interesting to get this kind of like almost interview level Propaganda interaction with the <clears throat> spiritualist movement of the 1920s, which is a really interesting phenomenon and like social movement. But... So I actually do kind of recommend the book for anyone who's kind of interested in weird social moments like that. But he's like, yeah, you know, there are there's such a thing as frauds. And he like has introduces a character who's, you know, he's going to be our fraud. The dude's like putting cigarettes out on kids. Like he's like the worst human being imaginable. Like he is like the devil incarnate. Like the, he introduces this guy. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's just like completely like a piece of absolute garbage and so cartoonish in terms of how it's like the good guys and the bad guys and the fraud. He's the ultimate bad guy. Cause he's the reason everyone's skeptical of us good mediums. Right. And eventually the guy, like, anyway, I won't give away spoilers, but it's, it's, it's just cartoonish in terms of like the way it handles. And you know, and God's not dead. It's like, Oh, the atheist was a complete jerk. You know what I mean? And had to like get hit by a car at the end or whatever. Right. Like it's just like, it's just a terrible, terrible movie. And, but the same level of like, integrity and storytelling for this novel as well and at the end of it he was so carried away that he broke the fourth wall and actually provided a whole bunch of appendices for the different chapters explaining how he was referencing real stuff for all of these things um and i mean he's so into it that he like makes the case for ectoplasm um which was crazy i was reading and i was going man he's not going to go here like he's not going to try to like convince us of the uh the reality of ectoplasm and then he immediately launches into it uh, and, and tries to sell you on ectoplasm. It's it's crazy. Anyway, I've been playing, you know, dumb to uh, or or revealing my ignorance. Yeah, today thanks, thanks for coming. So, what that, is uh, what is ectoplasm? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> 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 so, ectoplasm is like for me. I I like reading about ideas that I don't agree with. Right, I do this all the time. Um, and ectoplasm is one of those things where it's like I en I enjoy this as a thing I don't agree with. Um, because it's just so interesting. Uh, <laughs> so it was this idea that spirits couldn't interact with us physically, right? Um, because they were just spiritual. They needed some sort of physical, of the physical world substance that they could basically put on like a body glove that would allow them to interact with the world. And so... And with that, then all of a sudden they could, you know, you could feel them touch your hand and you could see them physically in the light and they'd be kind of translucent, but that they were actually wearing the ectoplasm, right? The ectoplasm is this weird sort of viscous substance secreted by gifted spiritual mediums. So spiritual mediums aren't just people who can channel spirits. They actually secrete a viscous substance called ectoplasm that would come out of uh, either off of their skin or out of their orifices Ugh, and then the spirits would like move into it kind of like air into 
like bubble gum when you're blowing a bubble, they would move into it and then they would wear the ectoplasm and interact with the room. And like, it was something that was like, it was so out to lunch. You'd be like, ah, man, you're not going to go there. But then he goes there and tries to sell people in the 20th century on how ectoplasm is real and it's not just cheesecloth and how... That was way more graphic than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. Can I just say that, like, ectoplasm, I was like, it probably isn't what it sounds like, but it, it exactly sounds yeah, like right. a viscous <laughs> substance secreted by a gland. Like, it, that's exactly what it sounds like, and that's what it is. And one of the things was because they didn't want people reaching out and grabbing it and realizing that it's a puppet, which is obviously where what I think it was, right? They would say, you cannot touch ectoplasmic secretions because you will damage the medium wherever they're secreting it. You know, you grab the ghost, and if it's coming off of his skin, he'll have, like, abrasions on his skin and stuff like that. You grab it, and if it's coming out of his, his, his nasal or mouth lining, then he'll, like, hemorrhage in his, in his mouth lining or his nose. And it's just like, this is outrageous, man. And he's, like, taking it so seriously, and you're like, I am... Like you are, but it's fascinating, isn't it? But this is the guy that. How wrote is this the guy who wrote Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes, the, the most like brilliant, intelligent books ever? Sherlock himself would be like, "Bruh, what are we talking what? about?" Anyway, G.K. Chesterton wrote a review of this book. <laughs> <laughs> did you have you read the review? Yeah, I did. I actually I found the review and I read it, and he was one of the most charitable reviews that came. I found a bunch of reviews of the book that were published like the year the book came out. New York Times was horrified by this book. <laughs> um, G.K. Chesterton was like, I'm going to try to be charitable, but he basically was just concerned for Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> I'm never going to talk about the book. I'm just going to question your sanity. Like, I'm just, how are you doing, bro? Yeah, well, he like he finishes this up, and I'm not going to quote it because I'll do a bad job of uh, uh, quoting Chesterton, and he has such a beautiful way with words. But he's like, what? He's like, I'm, I'm not so much bothered about this because it's like a, an idea that's clearly nonsense that was presented from a, a character, like the Professor Challenger or whatever the other characters in the book. He said, it's the fact that it's not about those characters at all. It's about Arthur Conan Doyle and what he actually believes. And that's what bothers me about this. And he, he but he's also quite gentle by and large with Doyle. Hmm. I think he was actually legitimately concerned. <laughs> uh, my last book is Entree Leadership, 20 Years of Practical Wisdom from the Trenches, which we already sort of talked about, but I loved it. Like, this is a, I could read almost every year kind of book just because of context, but it also is well-written. Like, it's not super long, super practical. Clearly, this guy's been, you know, hammering out these principles for a long time. And I just, I liked how it felt like distilled wisdom. And I, I love reading books like that, where you just, every few sentences, you're like, I need to write that down. That is like so true in like a resonant sense. Kind of like uh, how to win friends and influence people. Every once in a while, you're just like, man, that is so true. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Dave Ramsey does that, but actually like, sh- like more succinctly. And I like that he also is a Christian bringing in like that aspect of it too. So overall, a really good book. All right. Um, my next book was The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which we have talked about extensively, which takes me to my last book, Half a Sovereign, um, by a man named Ian Hay. I had never heard of the author Ian Hay, um, but I will be promptly finding more and reading more. Um, 
writing around the same time as like PG Woodhouse and stuff like that and writing in a way that is comparably humorous. I realize now as I'm sitting here just now that I apparently read a lot of books because I think they're funny. Um, I do read a lot of funny books. Um, anyway, Half a Sovereign, extremely funny. I actually really enjoyed it. But it got weird halfway through. But it was like, <laughs> like anyway, the premise is like there's this guy and he's like a World War One veteran and he is, he gets roped into going on this yachting cruise with these people who he cannot stand like socially. He finds them really insufferable. And he spends the entire time in like his inner monologue and his, his tirades about these people are so sarcastic and biting and stuff that it's extremely, extremely funny. And then halfway through like the the spirit of Queen Dido of Carthage shows up and interferes. It's, it's, it's bizarre, but <laughs> like, it like, but it stays extremely, extremely funny throughout. Like I honestly, one of my favorite funny reads for the year for sure. And I read a lot of funny stuff. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But yeah. Writing in the 1920s. Okay. So this is all the books then, right? Yeah. So, Typically, how have we ended these? Was there anything else you wanted to add? I think we've talked about like what our top threes were or things like that. Um, or, or is there anything else you want to recap the end of it with? Did you make it? Any guys make a top three? I did. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you got them, hit me. I might do a quick scan and throw out a couple suggestions. Sure. Yeah. I'm not. I'm. I'm. Well, I have a top three most enjoyed. Like I couldn't put them down, and then a top three recommended. So Perfect. I love that. Hit okay. Us. So my top we, three. Mostly ignore you while we're trying to frantically find our. Uh, yeah, go for it. You could also trim out a bit of silence while you think about us in the editing process too. Top three most enjoyed: um, Tracers in the Dark, American Kingpin. So those two similar books, mm. and then this is what it sounds like: the book about music. Um, just loved those. Couldn't put them down. My top three recommended would be for for pretty much anybody. I think would be Foreign to Familiar, Five Views on Inerrancy, and Embodied. Okay, I feel like I feel like embodied is just a really good, you know, with our with the caveats that you talked about. I mean, that's one that I think all of us immediately were just kind of like, I could see it, and all you guys were like, "Yep, that's gonna be read by at some point," you know. Yep. So that's cool. Um, so I have three that I'm gonna put out as sort of top recommendations. The first one is um, the Andy Crouch book, "The Life We're Looking For." Mm -hmm. Uh, and I am listing that actually above culture making. It's it's shorter, and I think that people will find it uh, immediately practical, kind of regardless of what your calling in life is. And then All the Light We Cannot See by Andy Doerr uh, as sort of like probably my top fiction read. Just incredible. Again, I did have a, a trigger warning in there for that one. And then Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, just as something that was just a fascinating and beautifully written piece. Cool. Books I enjoyed the most was probably Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, Me, Myself, and Bob, and Steve Jobs. Uh, and then Top Recommends is probably Rise and Triumph, Treading Boldly, I want to say four, Steve Jobs, and Adam and Eve After the Pill. So. Yeah, I'm just looking through... Um, I feel like Treading Boldly is just a great, uh, just a really, really, really big recommend if you're, for everybody, if you're going to be a parent within the next decade, please read that book. It's very, very good. Um, two books that I like 
I think it was true for both of these books that I was listening to an audiobook, went in my bed, turned off all the lights, and just kept listening to the audiobook as I like didn't want to fall asleep until the last moment where I feel like I just couldn't pay attention enough. Paused the audiobook, took my earbuds out, and then fell asleep because I was just so hooked on the story. Were Bad Blood um, by John Carreyrou and Project Hail Mary. Those two books were just like. I was completely hooked on them. I like. I literally want to go listen to Project Hail Mary right now. I wrote both those books down as books I have to read. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in, in wrapping this up, as you guys are looking at the next six months, obviously, love to do this again in six months from now during Christmas time. Um, as you guys are thinking, is there anything that you want to change or you have some goals or, or what's the next six months look like for you guys? Or are you just like, nah, rock and rolling, could be normal. I really want to read more fiction. Yeah, I, I seriously miss reading stories. I only read three stories. No, four stories. This first six months. That's actually like, ugh, doesn't doesn't feel good. I read a ton of theology. I want to read less theology, more stories. Uh, and keep going with bi- biographies or autobiographies. I was like at a decent pace with that. And I want to just like keep going. Yeah, I'll echo that I want to read more stories. Overall, though, I think I'll probably just keep doing what I've always hmm. done of just reading what interests me and yeah. what going on gut instinct mostly, as long as it's leading me to words, learning, and generally edifying stuff. So I'm on the other side where I read, apparently in the first six months, about two-thirds fiction, and I'm thinking maybe I should beef up my nonfiction side. Although, yeah, by and large, I'm probably just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Hmm. Yeah. I, I am allowing myself to be more informed, I think, by some of the recommendations I heard here today than I have maybe on in the past. A lot of times yeah. I get like a lot of book recommendations. I'm like, well, I already have a big stack. Yeah. Um, I'm probably not going to be able to disrupt that very much. It really takes a, an incredible recommendation to make me disrupt my pile of books I need to get through. And so I my, my pile of books is less in stone at the moment. So I'm letting some of the stuff I've been hearing here today disrupt my current to-be-read pile more than I would have in the past. Cool. Yeah, I mean, same same thing. Like, I, I really, I really want to come back next year having either reread their Inheritance Cycle, or Harry Potter, or um, Rick Riordan's yeah Percy Jackson series. Uh, just because I just miss those. I just I maybe mean, part of me wants kind of that comfort food of like those stories from a kid where I was just I vibe. I love the Percy Jackson like. I just really, really enjoy reading those. Have you ever gone back to a book that you read as a kid or a series you read as a kid and been like, <gasps> and then it would kind of let it down? You're like, oh man, this didn't actually, yeah. this didn't end up being good as an adult. I can't think of any, to be honest. I, I can. I, you can? Okay. Yeah. See, to be honest, I don't, I think for some of these books as a kid, I think I don't, I don't think my taste is sophisticated enough to, to really not want what I wanted out of them then. I don't want much more out of that book than I in, that I got out of it as a kid. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm going back. Like it's not like I was a, when I was a kid being like, "Oh, I really love the complex themes in this novel and how they well round out my perspective on the world." I'm like, no, it's a guy with a sword. He like chops off Medusa's head. It's hilarious. I, it's I awesome. get that. I love you know? that. And like even when I went back uh, last year, I read a whole bunch of the Oz books again. I I didn't want anything more from it than I got the first time around. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was rewarding in in that in that yeah. space. You know. I got out of it what I wanted from it. But did you guys read the Redwall books as kids? Oh, yeah. 
Okay. Have you tried don't, going back no, and reading those? No, that's one I might don't avoid do doing it. that. Okay. Yeah, because so Micah Osterhoff and I were talking about this. <clears throat> we both read the read all books as kids. Okay. We both went back and tried to reread them, and we're both disappointed. Ooh, okay. That yeah. they were like they oh those didn't yeah those ones didn't stay good for me. Okay, as might, an adult might avoid that one. I got some cherished memories. I have some very. Yeah, Great. it was a big deal for me. I loved all the characters and the different animals and stuff like that. But yeah, trying to read them again as an adult, I was like, this is boring. <laughs> Did any of you guys read The Warriors? Yeah. Those are ones that I have not gone back to read, but I'm pretty sure I would like cringe and also be like, there's some like spiritual, like, <laughs> oh yeah, there's some weird stuff going on weird. here. It's like books about wild cats in the woods that like have a society and. It's like it's it's kind of it's kind of like a fantasy novel, except that it does take place in the real world because the main character is like a domesticated cat who becomes feral and like meets the tribe and gets integrated into it. It yeah, it wasn't awesome. I I think the reason I haven't gone back to Redwall or that is because at a certain point in both those series as a kid, I started realizing that I hated it. So oof, it was like. I'm not as an adult like wanting to go back because the nostalgia is already ruined. I already stopped enjoying it before I was even done the phase. So, yeah. I I genuinely even as I'm sitting here, I'm going no way. Like I feel like I could go back to Brian Jack, go back to the Redwall books, and find one that I loved again, like the Outcast of Redwall. Which Wall, one did you the read? The Pearls of Lutra. Yeah, I, mean, I read so many of those because I feel like the Pearls of Lutra, um, Marl Fox, Marl Fox, Marl Fox. Dog. I read Marl Fox multiple times. And Let's go read Marl Fox again. Yeah, and, and see if we still the because Pearls Marl, of Lutra. The later ones, I feel like the later ones were better. The Outcast of Redwall. The, the Outcast uh, of Redwall yeah. really got me too. Yeah. See, the thing is, I, Redwall is the first book. The thing with the Redwall is, I, I feel like it started off not quite as coherent of a world, and he cemented a few things a bit later on. As like, okay, this is the game I'm playing. You know what I mean? The Legend of Luke. Oh, dog. Dog. Martin the Warrior. Stop. Moss Flower. All of. Oh, see, man, this is like you're t- you're pulling memories from like you're pulling memories up that the are the Long like, Patrol. I don't think any of them are good guys. I'm. I'm really <laughs> suggesting for you're pulling you're pulling fifteen year old memories out. Well, more than fifteen for me, uh, sir. Wow. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. These are these like twenty year old memories. But yeah, um, yeah look, more than that, five years more. Five years more. I'm sure, old. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I generally though, I have a hard time believing that I wouldn't enjoy Marl Fox if I went yeah. back now. But I yeah. probably wouldn't. I probably hate it. Okay, interesting. I'm, I might do it. We'll see. We'll see. It'd be interesting. I, I part of me feels like it'd be kind of cool. I mean, you guys kind of made this little pact to read that one, The Seven Wonders and the Crown of Jewels. You guys, you made the pact too. Yeah, I made the pact too. Okay, so we'll we'll all read that. Um, but I almost <laughs> yeah. do. I almost do like the idea of not like tying ourselves too tightly to any reading schedule. This is not a. I agree. This is not a book club. This is not a reading schedule thing. It's we. In some ways, it's kind of fun that we all go our separate ways and then come back being like, "So where have you been the last six months for your reading stuff?" And it's just like. Left field. Like, I had no idea you did this cybercrime plunge. That's hilarious. You know what I mean? Or I might have. You might have told me about it. But, and that's yeah, just, I try to avoid talking with you guys too much until it happens. About, or book, about books. About not, books. Not <laughs> cool. Guys, uh, this has been a long pod. Uh, it takes the record for the longest. We're at six, six hours and 48 minutes. I feel like I planned that it would be six hours, and I knew that it probably would go longer. And yes, well. Yeah, this is great. Well, <laughs> love you guys. Yeah, love you guys so much. So grateful that we got to do Dear this. Listener, I love you too. Yes. Please send nice messages. I love you more. Thank you to our audience. <laughs> All right, let's let's wrap it up here. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at It's the Volk. Have a good one, guys.